What if we build collaborations for sustainability by sharing meals? This is the Levers of Exchange, and I'm your host, Jimmy Gio. Today, I'm joined in conversation with Kaya Axelson, who's the Net Zero Policy Engagement Fellow here at Oxford University. We discussed tidbits that we heard in the Season 3 podcast and learned, amongst others, that were both from Seattle. The episode is sponsored by the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Said Business School, Oxford. Don't forget to subscribe and please enjoy our conversation. Well, Kaya, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Jimmy, thank you so much for having me. It's um, it's a great day in England. And so you have been very kind in hearing the entire podcast season now and thinking through some of it reflected on your work. So let me just start by asking, what is your biggest impression, your biggest takeaway from what some of the speakers mentioned and talked about? Yeah. So one of the things that I I loved so much about this podcast is how when you take a range of people doing the work of trying to mitigate some of our biggest, most systemic issues from climate change to which touches how we relate to people, how we relate to nature, how we relate to waste, how we relate to things that are not even material like finances, but that have such a huge impact on all of those more material things. What you find is that we can't do it without every single one of these people and so many more doing the deep work. And I think what The main takeaway that I have had from listening to this podcast series was just how much we need each other in this work and how much we need the deep knowledge of our peers and the deep time and attention that they give. I'm a kind of high level system thinker, but every single person you brought on was not only a brilliant system thinker, but was also really willing to deep dive on what they're doing and to take the time to do it well. So that was my main takeaway. Yeah, it goes to show what one of my main theses of putting the podcast together, which is that every job is a sustainability job. To me, I don't think there is such a thing as a separate sustainability function inside of a company, but rather it's integrated into every single job, every single function, every single task. What were some of the ones that you heard that really resonated with you? I completely agree with you. And these are, this is one of the questions that we're asking businesses that we are interviewing right now about their net zero strategies. Are you, do you have one department that's delivering on your net zero strategy or do you have a system wide diffusion approach? To answer your question, most recently I was reflecting on Joaquin's work and I was thinking about how when he goes and kind of thinks about wastewater treatment, He has to go and talk to individual restaurant owners and think, do they even have a place that they could do this? Do we have to create and design new technology so that it can fit into their tiny little space in a kind of crowded tourist town, as opposed to just sort of doing a one size fits all approach that might be more convenient for a government? You know, I think you raise a good point with Joaquin's interview. One of the things that struck me was how much on the ground interviewing he did with individual farmers, individual customers, individual. And we tend to think when we work at very high levels of these broad systems change and we want to be able to have effects on these broad systems change. But yet when we get down to the individual initiatives and individual interventions, they take minute buy in from every player 
And somehow someone has to be on the ground talking to those individuals one-on-one. Yeah, this is, if I'm being quite honest, this is one of the things that gives me a crisis of confidence about climate change, because I recognize the scale of urgency and the scale of solutions that we need and the sensitive intervention point thinking that I do is around what are what are a few of the key kicks and shifts that we can rally around that can kick off feedback loops, feedback dynamics in the socioeconomic system. We frankly don't have time at this point to sort of get everybody on board. Even when you do something like a border carbon tax adjustment or carbon pricing with a dividend, you're still initiating systems in which dedicated people are going to have to roll out those changes. So even though you've created the new incentive structure for those systems, there are still people who are doing the work to make that happen. And it's a real tension of do we focus on, because we have so little time, do we focus on a few real key sensitive intervention points? Or do we focus on mobilizing as many people as possible so that they can be the change makers? And we have to do both. We have no choice but to do both. As an individual trying to figure out where to place your energy, thinking, do I do one or the other? I don't know. I I guess I'll put that question back to you, Jimmy. How do you answer that question for yourself? Yeah, that's a really tough question because there is both the levers needed on the systems change side, but then there's also the individual one-on-one convincing and mobilization that has to happen, right? And to me, I think it depends on where a person individually feels more comfortable, Because I think that Mm -hmm. comes down to personality, right? Some Mm -hmm. people feel much more comfortable and they feed off of the energy of individual conversations and individual crowds, whereas Mm -hmm. there's others that really like thinking about the broad systems theories and systems dynamic and try to uh, create new feedback loops up on this, you know, larger policy level, theoretical level. And even though we acknowledge we need both, it means we need to understand both But it doesn't mean that we have to become an expert in implementing on both levels. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I think the big system thinkers like myself need to hear this the most is that we don't ever kind of create a system theory that is not informed by those on the ground. And so even if we can't physically be doing the work of interviewing every single person, maybe we maybe we interview one of the bridge connectors and maybe you've interviewed a number of bridge connectors. I think I certainly think Shruti is a, is a bridge actor. Um, that's a term that comes from the sort of social movements literature. Um, it, this is a, probably a terrible example, but Paul Revere is considered a bridge actor in the American Revolution because he literally rode from one town to the next to, to say, OK, what's happening on the ground? Is it really actually connecting with what the generals over here are thinking? And without that they wouldn't have won you know the revolution and ultimately we need a, a revolution of consciousness and a, a revolution of our economic system yeah I, I think that's a very good observation and there's i think two other specific examples of bridge actors in the podcast series one of which is natalia pranishnaya yes. who basically had to connect the telecom sector to individual smallholders in rural africa looking at weather patterns and i think the critical problem she was dealing with which is climate change is coming Within five years, the people who have been farming for centuries will no longer be able to farm their crop. And yet, because these are small holders, individual generational holders, some of them don't even have Internet. So they plant their seeds based on tradition from hundreds of years, not based on weather forecast. And as the weather and climate is going to change in the next five years, their entire livelihood is going to be gone. 
Yeah. So how do we reach thousands and thousands of shareholders with technology? And how can technology enable us to be able to do that and bridge that gap? If you think of technology as a bridge in itself, someone has to ensure that there's access to that. Um, And so there's a people element, too. I think sometimes we talk about technology as if it's like the magical catch-all that acts alone. But then you see people like Natalia who are ensuring that gets into the hands of the people who can be empowered by it. And that just shows about that bridge actor role and how important it is. But I also think what Natalia has done is, is a two way street. You know, she's brought those stories of those shareholder farmers back to us. Um, She's been working in this space for now, you know, years and years. So some people I noticed, particularly in the agriculture sector, are waking up to the sequestration potential of agriculture and soil. And you've got all these financiers who are coming in and saying, oh, yes, I've I've built my career on this system that's fairly broken, but now I would like to do something good and maybe we can make money at the same time. So how do we um, how do we incentivize farmers to sequester soil? And it's a really great question, but you really need people like Natalia to say, well, I've actually asked this question for many years, and I hope that I hope that those people who have just sort of woken up to the problem come to people like her and listen, because she has a lot of wisdom to offer there. When she talks about telecom as an enabling sector within sustainable finance, we think of finance as an enabling sector, but yet so is telecom, and so is many mm-hmm. other infrastructure sector like road building and mm-hmm. rail, roads and rails, transportation, even wastewater is an enabling sector when we start thinking about that from a sustainability perspective. What do you think is the role of the enabling sectors versus the real economy uh, mm-hmm. versus the financial sector? I guess I would challenge that categorization because I, I think that the enabling sector, the infrastructure is is so real. We often talk about sustainability in a completely wrong way, in my view. You know, people show up to panels and they say, what can I do? And we tell them, you know, go vegetarian, make better choices, recycle better. And, you know, those are all great things to do. But it's the enabling sector where real change happens. You know, just because one person is doing their best doesn't mean that all 99 out of 100 other people are going to be doing their best unless they have the enabling conditions. A good example from my work recently, I was interviewing someone who uh, manufactures tires to talk about how they are reducing emissions and the end use of their tires. They're sort of part of the enabling sector in some way. Maybe they're part of the real economy sector, however you're drawing that distinction. But in order to extend the life of a tire, which is actually against their business interests, but they just care about sustainability enough to do this, they have to talk to fleet managers about how they can work with drivers to give them better brakes and to give them more time to deliver packages because otherwise drivers are whipping around turns and that destroys a tire. And so because you kind of have created an enabling system that enables poorer driving and and also probably roads, roads themselves are enabling kind of difficult driving, you're reducing the mitigation impact of that product. So I think that there's so much that we need to think about um, in our systems together with people and how we can create conditions for people to succeed rather than putting the burden on individuals to make the right or better choice for sustainability when they have all these other pressures on them. What I find in sustainable finance, it draws two distinctions. There's the financial sector and then there's the real economy. And I've always Mm -hmm. scratched my head wondering, well, what's the actual definition of the real Mm -hmm. economy? Because Mm -hmm. that seems like a catch-all of anything non-finance. Sure. 
maybe there is this third category. Maybe we have to dive into how do we separate out real economy into the real economy and then these enabling sectors and try to understand, well, what does this technology actually enable? What does this sector enable? We could say electricity is just an enabling sector, but yet electricity is what's causing a lot of fossil fuels. Same thing with roads, same thing with cement. All of these by themselves are not the end product. All of these enable society to function in some way Mm, that we want to be able to achieve a societal benefit, a cultural benefit if we come to what Shruti is talking about. Yeah, no, I understand your distinction a lot better now. And I think if I was, if I had to choose, as we all sort of do, maybe I would start with these enabling sectors as we have, right? Electricity can be decarbonized and that is going to enable decarbonization feedbacks in transport, um, in, in food and in, in every other sector, pretty much. Exactly. Like having done these podcasts for so long, one of the things that I run across all the time is that these infrastructures all have their constraints, all have their requirements, but then they all enable so many different Mm -hmm. things. You know, Mm -hmm. when we look at what um, like Shruti is talking about with that enabling, then we have to start looking at those cultural contexts, whether it's Western traditions, Indian traditions, Maori traditions from New Zealand. She's been very fortunate to live between so many traditions that she can see the differences in the patterns of how they each treat yeah. the environment differently through their interpretations of of what that environment means. Yeah. So surely the way that the Indian culture or the Maori culture or the Western culture builds their infrastructure around them is mm. quite different in how they achieve those outcomes that they want. And that maybe um, speaks to a precondition, which she said is missing from the innovation discussion, which is state of mind. That state of mind is something that we have that, you know, that's, that's where we start from. And if we start from a state of mind that is more generous towards one another, that is less competitive and more collaborative, then we will com- completely build a different system um, and and almost having that as a precondition um, to kind of the engineering work that other folks that you interviewed are sort of doing, I think that could be that could be really powerful. One of my favorite quotes from her was just saying how it's not about teaching other people sustainability solutions; it's about bringing them along into your sustainability journey and just exploring together, even if you think you know what the answer is, you might not know what the answer is, and. Inviting someone along is a great way to exchange knowledge, whether it's one way or two way. I love what she said about sometimes you need to have a meal, an entire meal and not talk about work. And and through that, you actually learn so much more than if you ask the direct question. I'm far too direct, I think, sometimes. Um, But if you're listening uh, while someone is eating or if you're even just sort of observing how someone eats and shares their food, that might tell you a lot more about how you need to work with them than um, than if you said, how would you like to work together? Exactly. And, you know, both of us being Americans and now at Oxford University, we definitely <laughs> see the difference of the sharing of the meal as a mm-hmm. key component of the educational experience, right? So much yeah. of the education here at Oxford takes place at formal dinners where yeah. you're just simply eating and talking. 
Yeah, I found that I'll, I'll be sort of tell a personal story here, which is just that I um, I came from a really different culture back home. I came from an activist culture, uh, kind of as far as you can get from, you know, we were eating mush that was collected from food stamps on the side of the road while we were doing like deforestation blockades, blockades of deforestation, uh, <laughs> not the other way around. And then I showed up at Oxford on these formal dinners and I had like kind of a culture shock and a really adverse reaction to the the um, gilded halls and the the formality of the robes and the <laughs> the fancy dinners and being served even was kind of really uh, uncomfortable for me coming from that previous environment culturally and I really shut myself off from that I didn't attend hardly any formal dinners I thought Oxford was about kind of learning on your own so I was reading all the time in the library by myself I drove myself crazy uh, I had an existential crisis as many of us have about about how we solve climate change. And I I rewrote and rewrote my thesis proposal. I couldn't find a foothold. I finally had to start showing up to those formal dinners and meeting people who cared. And actually, Shruti was one of the first people I met at those formals. And I was like, oh, wait, she's here, but she cares so deeply the way I do. And now we can start thinking and firing on these different cylinders. And it wasn't until I got out of my own bubble and I sort of overcame a cultural barrier that I realized that there's really good people everywhere you are to work with. And that that was a, a hurdle for me at Oxford. And so I hope anyone who's at Oxford who's listening to this who might be having a similar experience. Yeah, here's that. I think so. I mean, I think it's really important to have those random networking conversations. When I was in my undergraduate, I was living inside of a fraternity, Theta Xi, and it was 30 to 40 guys living together, <laughs> struggling with academics, essentially, but every single night, it was some crazy conversation about, you know, well, what if we built a duct tape ladder to the moon? It's just kind of <laughs> one of those, you know, Randall Monroe type books, but every single day for four to five years where you're just asking these random crazy questions and you're trying to think, well, how would you actually do that? And then kind of sketching it out, doing the math. And then you realize, oh, I don't have the answer as materials guy, but the mechanical yeah. engineer does. And the aerospace guy can talk about orbital speeds yeah. and whatnot. And, and then you realize you can actually get together and build something. And, and those were really, really productive yeah. times of my life. That's so right on the realization that some of the best work happens at the margins of life and not scheduled in um, is something that I've actually had to learn to sort of make time for. But I did I did have a similar experience in undergrad in college. I um, recently my best friend found a note. We were roommates for all four years in college. They put us together and we couldn't have been more different people. And then we decided to continue living in the same room for four years because we just liked our conversation so much. And we would sit around. Remember the cafeteria? It felt like it was spinning because we would sit there for hours debating. And she was a philosophy major and a neuroscientist. And so I was often way out of my league. But we would talk about everything from the existence of God to the logic of liberal government and whether it fit with like fundamental you know, principles of democracy. And, you know, now my life is pretty much entirely about climate change. But when you come to Oxford, you get to bring in those other perspectives because they all relate to climate change. And talking about different perspectives, let's talk about Jeremy McDaniel's interview at International yeah. 
Institute of International Finance, one of the key points that he said was that when we look at finance broadly, that there's actually quite a bit of jargon within each one of the subsectors, whether it's Mm -hmm. the insurance companies that talk about physical risk or the banks that talk about transition risks, or even some of the investors that are really looking at key opportunities. And those are just within what's known as the TCFD framework, the Task Force for Financial Related Climate Disclosures. Today, now that you're working on net zero initiatives, how do you translate amongst these different sectors and stakeholder groups that you work with? That's um, that's something that we're still working on, if I'm being really honest. Um, I'm having a you know difficult enough time translating between the climate scientists and physicists and sort of a more public and policy audience. Um, but what I find is that actually um, that translation work, just like everything else we sort of discussed today, it, it doesn't happen best in a one-way street. So, you know, it doesn't happen best when I just think, okay, this will be the best thing for the public audience taking a scientific document and just sort of putting it out on the web. It happens best in a two-way conversation. So when we've kind of brought together policymakers and other stakeholders, that has worked a lot better than I think, you know, just putting something out there and hoping it will stick. I think that the term net zero is a really controversial one that is highlighting some of it's a really important term and i think that jeremy noted that it's kind of helping clarify us towards like a a shared north star one that maybe we kind of needed to have a while back and sort of cutting through some of the noise on an esg because it is a physical term right it's a balance of emissions sinks and sources i don't think that the finance community has yet particularly i was i was talking to someone who kind of works in the insurance sector yet and they're like well we can't just not insure things. So the question of like where the point is that you where you pull out if someone, an entity you're working with in the finance sector is not net zero, I think actually some of the best work happens again through the engagement, through conversation of, okay, well, the goal is that you as a company or, you know, you as an entity that I'm helping finance um, or insure is net zero. I think it's those conversations happening where the the real work, the kind of the transition from the financial to material actually gets done. And that engagement is frustrating for financiers because it's not it's not as easy to track as, say, a, a typical sort of ESG portfolio where you just rank a bunch of companies and then you just throw out the ones that are not ranking well, which you can splice a million different ways. And as we've seen in kind of the ESG uh, gray zone for the past like several years, that's happened. But when you talk to a company about their net zero strategy and what they're struggling with, the sort of pain points, you realize, okay, well, you know, maybe there's an investment opportunity. And that's where we're talking about a shift from greening finance, which is just sort of like making sure that your financial investments are sort of pure and greenish to financing green. If you're doing that engagement with the companies in your portfolio, or if your funder is doing that engagement with the companies in your portfolio and realizing, shoot, we've got a real gap in the UK on heating, then you can identify that actually, if you pour a bunch of financial impact investing into improving heating alternatives and giving people financing products to improve their heating alternatives, then you can really make more of an impact and you can work together rather than just kind of requiring a bunch of reporting and then tossing people out if they're not good enough. It raises the question of what does green finance mean? Does it mean that I just only own green things or does it mean I turned black things to brown things? Yeah. And if I engaged and turned black things to brown things, that's actually really impactful. Whereas if I just held on to green things and said, look, my portfolio is green, we're not actually changing anything. We're just saying that I happen to own green things. 
it also creates a little bit of a risk for you because what you're saying is that I'm green and I can back this other company that's green. And what happens if, you know, as happens in our global economy, something in that in that company's operations is not green? We're we're all marching towards really, really not perfect to less not perfect together. And that's, um, that's, you know, it's not easy to talk about. We want it, we want it to be a perfect picture for consumers, but creating a culture in which companies can talk about their challenges and, and share how they're overcoming them is really important. And I think that will actually build more consumer trust in the end. Hey, thanks again for listening. And I hope you really enjoyed that. Please don't forget to subscribe and visit our website, www.leversofexchange.com. We'll see you next time.